0: Well, good evening. It's an incredible pleasure for me to be here with you. This is my fifth time to Australia and my second time to Melbourne. The first time I was here was the first time I came to Australia in 2012. So I'm thrilled to be back here. Now, tonight's topic is on apologetics. And apologetics comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means to defend. So we're going to talk about how to defend the faith without being defensive. We seem to have a problem with that today. And I'll show you. I'll start off by giving you a a real-life example. I live in the state of Oregon, in the United States, on the on the West Coast. There's only three states there: California, Oregon, and Washington. The area that I live in is called the Pacific Northwest. It is the most unchurched region of the United States. More atheists, agnostics, witches, Wiccans, you name it. The tree huggers, all that stuff, are up there. We often get attacked by people who have no faith. And I'll give you a real life example of what happens on a regular basis. I was shopping in a grocery store. And I was on the aisle with the beans and the corn. And I'm minding my own business looking at what my, making sure I'm getting what my wife wants me to get there. And a shopping cart's coming the other direction. I don't pay any attention to it. But then the cart stops. I don't pay any attention to it. But I kept thinking that someone was looking at me. And, I look over and the guy standing there with his cart is looking at me and he leans over and he sees my crucifix. Now, I am a permanent deacon. I've been ordained a deacon for almost 16 years in the Catholic Church. So I'm not going to become a priest, all right? Um, but, so we don't typically wear clerics like what Father's wearing, but uh, we can uh, when we're doing official ministry. Most of the time I dress like this. But I, I wear my crucifix in public because I am embarrassed or ashamed of my faith. So the guy so the guy leans over and looks at me. He goes, Oh, <laughs> you're one of those Jesus freaks. You know that your religion has caused for all the problems in the world. And he went on about the Inquisition and the crusade, blah, 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 blah. So after he finished, and I sit there saying nothing. And after his little tirade, he says to me, and you can't even prove to me that God exists. And I said, Well? How about I prove to you that it's possible that God could exist? How about that? He says, okay. So I took out my mobile and I put it on the, I moved the beans and the corn to the side (laughs) and I put my mobile on the shelf and I asked him, is my phone moving, yes or no? You're the atheist. The answer is, is, is my phone moving, yes or no? Somebody said yes, who? Yeah, why'd you say yes? Yes, because the Earth is moving, which is what he said. So I'm like, okay, smarty pants. Um, Relative to the rotation of the Earth, relative to the rotation of the Earth, is the phone moving, yes or no? No. So the laws of physics and science would say that this is an object that is at rest. It's in a state of potential motion because it's not actually moving. Now, in order to move from a state of potential to actual motion, what has to be applied to the object? Force, mass times acceleration. So I said, in order for that phone to move, I gotta pick it up, I gotta knock it over, I gotta knock the shelf over, which knocks the phone over. There has to be an earthquake that shakes the store, that shakes the self, that knocks the phone over, or the phone will stay there forever. <laughs> because an object that is at rest, or potential motion will continue to remain at rest unless Appli- unless a force is applied to it. He said, yes, that's logic and science. Are there objects in the universe that are moving? Yes. Yes. The moon is moving, the earth is moving, the moon is moving around the earth, they're both moving around the sun, we have comets, we have meteorites, we have asteroids, light, there's a bunch of things that are moving. Now we just said, things don't move unless a force is applied to it. What caused all the motion in the first place? Big bang! bang! And I said, I agree, because that was a theory developed by a Catholic priest. (laughs) No, it wasn't! (laughs) Hold on, my friend. Since my phone is in use, get your phone out. (laughs) Go to Google. Type in Father George Lemaitre. Let me spell it for you. Tell me what it says. Oh, all right. Big Bang, since you brought it up, what caused the Big Bang? Yeah, his answer too, silence. I said, you're O for one. Let me give you a chance to redeem yourself. We're walking along the Amazon basin in South America. I dropped my phone on the jungle floor. Not too far behind me are a group of Yanomamo Indians that are indigenous to that region. They're on a hunting expedition. They find my phone and pick it up. They've never seen, felt, touched materials like this, seen anything like this technology ever. Would they think that this phone created itself? Yes or no? no? No. What would they think? That some god or some alien or something created it. Why? Because things don't create themselves. So I said to him, did your shirt create itself? No. No. Did the can of beans on the shelf create itself? Did the tree outside create itself? Can somebody tell me anything that exists that it created itself? But we're all here. Where did it come from? All the stuff the universe here, where'd it come from? He actually had an answer. I'll see if anybody else can guess his answer. He said, gravity. (laughs) With a smile on his face. (laughs) Now I know why he was smiling. Because he thought, oh, here's another Catholic don't know nothing about their faith. (laughs) Wrong answer. I've read the Four Horsemen of Atheism's books. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, read their books. But when he said gravity, that's Stephen Hawking, read his book too. Stephen Hawking says because there is gravity, the universe can and will continue to create itself out of nothing. The problem is that Dr. Hawking does not answer in his book where does gravity come from? University of Michigan in the United States, 100,000 students at that uni, 100,000. Put out a study about vacuums in space. Vacuums are basically voids or nothing in space. Are composed of particles and antiparticles, matter and antimatter. So nothing is made of something. Fine. Where do those particles and antimatter come from? Because they don't say in their report. His answer too. Nothing. You're 0 for 2. Now in America, in baseball, three strikes and you're out. I said I'll give you one more chance. The second law of thermodynamics is called entropy. Entropy measures the level of chaos and disorderness within systems. So a simple example, you have a pool, you're playing pool, billiards, and the balls are all racked up with the rack thing. I don't know, I don't play pool, I know what it's called. But you, they're all racked up. Now that is a closed ordered system that has potential to do work because it's in disequilibrium. So it's a low entropy. Once the rolling cue ball, the energy is transferred from the rolling cue ball into the other balls, it disperses the balls all across the table. It is now a disordered, chaotic system that is at equilibrium, no potential to do any work, higher entropy. I said, my phone, as exists right now, an ordered system of molecule in disequilibrium potential to do tremendous amounts of work. If I take this phone and smash it into 100 pieces on the ground, it is now a disordered and chaotic system. It's in a state of equilibrium. No, Not much potential to do any work at all. It's high entropy. Following? So, I said to him, since you brought up the Big Bang, what kind of universe did we have at the Big Bang? High or low entropy? Low entropy. Because, think about it, the universe is approximately 14.7 billion years old and it's still expanding. There are supermassive black holes that are creating, that are sent at the centers of galaxies that are considered to be the engines for galaxy generation. Stars are collapsing. uh, The universe still has a tremendous amount of entropy. It still has a a, a tremendous low entropy from 14.7 billion years. Now what you would expect is that there would be a loss of energy over 14.7 billion years, but there hasn't been. The universe is sti- continuing to expand. So how, does, how is that possible? See, Dawkins in his book says, well, the, this came about by chance, by chance. What are the odds of having a low entropy event at the Big Bang, the odds of that just being by chance? 10 to the 10 to the 123 to one. My friends, that's a double exponent. 10 to the 10 to the 123 to one. If you put all those zeros next to each other, they couldn't fit our solar system. That's the odds of having a a low entropy event. So I said, my friend, how is that possible? I said, because you can't go backwards. so you you can't, can the pool balls re-rack themselves without a force? No. If I take the 100 pieces of my phone and throw them up into the air, will it come down as a cell phone? So how could you say it's by chance that we have a low entropy event at the beginning? How is that possible? Crickets, (laughs) 0 for 3. I said now you have to apply the law of Occam's Razor. Occam's Razor said if you have a series of competing hypotheses, each with equally predictive outcomes, the one with the fewest assumptions is the one that's mostly correct. I gave you three assumptions, you couldn't give me an answer. Now, just from sheer logic and reason alone, since I did not speak about God once in the examples I just gave you, you must now conclude that my answer, as improbable as it is to you, is at least possible. That's the conclusion Albert Einstein came to. (laughs) Are you smarter than Einstein? And what happened? He took his cart and he walked away. Now, was my goal to embarrass him? To blah, blah, blah? No. See, the reason why people yell and scream and curse at you and call you all kinds of names, because they have no argument. They want, you so caught, they want you so caught up in the emotion of the yelling and the screaming and the name calling that you don't think. And why I love being Catholic, because we're a thinking church. So we have to cut past the emotion. First of all, you've got to get used to it. You've got to get used to it. Jesus says, if, if you are to be my disciples, and who's a disciple? One who hears, accepts, and puts into practice in their life every day the teachings of Jesus Christ and the Catholic faith. If you are to be my disciples, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And if we do that, the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. They spat on him, they mocked him, they kicked him, they punched him. And the same thing is going to happen to us. Get used to it. Pull your big boy pants or your big girl panties up. <laughs> this playtime's over. We, we have to defend the faith without being defensive. See, the whole goal is this of apologetics. Not to win arguments, believe it or not. It's not to win arguments, it's not to yell, it's not to scream, it's not the who can shout louder, it's not who makes the best points, it's not even who's right and who's wrong. Ultimately, it's about what's true and what's not true. And so the goal is, for the person standing in front of you, is how do I get this person to want to listen to more of what I have to say? That's the goal. How do I get this person in front of me to want to listen to more of what I have to say? So on the topics we're going to cover tonight, man, you, you, you can do hour-long pre- or more presentations on any one of these. We don't have time. So I'm just going to kind of give a little shotgun approach to some of these issues. The first one I want to talk about then is the church. Now, Jesus says he came to found the church. Now, when again, I was getting off a plane not too long ago, and again, where are my crucifix? And a nice young woman came up to me and said, oh, I love your cross. And when she said cross, I knew she wasn't Catholic because she didn't say crucifix, but she's very nice. I said, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that, thank you. She goes, well, what denomination are you? I said, oh, I'm not any denomination, I'm Catholic. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? And I said, where do you? And she said, Anglican. I said, oh, so Henry VIII founded your church. She said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, I, I, let's, I said, let's take a quick look. Um, Martin Luther founded the Lutherans. John Calvin founded the Calvinists. Ulrich Zwingli founded the reform movement. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy founded the Church of, Scient- uh, church of Christian Science. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard founded the Church of Scientology. Uh, Ellen Gould White founded the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, Charles Taze Russell founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, T.D. Jakes founded the Potter House in 1993. Uh, John Osteen founded Lakewood Bible Church in ni- 1982. Now his son Joel Osteen runs it. Uh, Joseph Smith found the I said, pick one. And they can always trace their origins back to a human being. But Jesus said he came to found a church. In Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock I'll build my church. In Matthew 18, he says church twice. If you have something against your brother, work it out between the two of you. If that doesn't work, bring some witnesses. If that doesn't work, take it to the church. The church. church. Not a church, the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. So I said, Jesus says church, he came and found church three times. What church was that? So she's thinking, 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 thinking. And I said, let me help you. Name a Protestant in the year 1200. In the year 800. In the year 500. How about the year 100? Mm, Can't think of any. So, what does that mean? She goes, well, I guess that'd be the Catholic Church. I'm like, yeah, so we're not a denomination, we're the common denominator. (laughs) So, again, what's the point? Not this, but see, now here's the problem. Here's the problem. Especially, we both know this very well, your country and mine, about the sex abuse thing. So people are saying, well, how do I wanna belong to a church where the priest, Abuse kids and blah blah blah, okay, here's how I deal with that, because I get that all the time. Now, I used to be a police chief, right? I had a 23 year law enforcement career, 11 years as a chief I was also an anti-terrorism expert. So I use a lot of kind of police examples. So when I was chief, let's just say that one of my officers pulls over a young lady for speeding, and in our country when you pull someone over, the officer is supposed to ask for driver's license, car rate, vehicle registration, and proof of insurance. So he gets to the window and he sees that the woman is quite attractive. So he says, well, to get out of the ticket, you can do this. She's highly offended and angry. She comes to the police station, files a formal complaint against that officer. I suspend the officer pending an investigation. Somehow it gets leaked to the media. And people find out what that officer did and they're angry and they're outraged, and rightly so, because that officer swore an oath that he would serve and protect the community. And instead, he used his position of authority to abuse that privilege of serving the people in the community. Would your next logical step then be, I'm gonna speed whenever I want, I'm gonna blow every stop sign, I'm gonna run every red light, I'm not going to follow law anymore because of what that one officer did. Would that be your next logical step? No, then why do we do it to the church? People say I'm going to leave the Catholic church because of that priest. I'm going to not because of church because of that priest. Those are Now first of all, tell me where the church teaches it's okay to abuse kids. One kid that's abused is one kid too many. I spent my career protecting children one kid abuses one too many but those priests were not following the teachings of the church they're like that officer so why would your next conclusion be walk away from the church founded by Jesus Christ because of what that priest did guess what jesus had 12 apostles one was judas there're always going to be judases in the church what we need to focus on is the teachings of the church Not necessarily the people in the church who are sinners in need of God's mercy, which we all are. You don't walk away from the way, the truth, and the life because human beings are sinful. How about another example? I have a book coming out about a priest named Father Augustus Tolton, the first black priest in the United States of America, born into slavery in 1854, escapes from slavery to the Underground Railroad, makes his way to the north to Quincy, Illinois. His family's Catholic. They try to go to a Catholic church. The priests welcome them with open arms, the nuns welcome them with open arms, but the parishioners, different story. Father, we will pull our financial support away from this parish if those niggers continue to worship with us. Father, we will pull our kids out of Catholic school if they continue to worship here. Father, we will leave the Catholic faith if you let them stay. But they finally found, so the other priests got scared and they moved them around from parish to parish. So they got to this one parish with a good old, good old Irish priest. I don't care what these people say, you're staying. <laughs> now as Augustus got older, Father McGurr said, hey, think you might have a vocation to the priesthood. So when he got old enough, they wrote every seminary in the United States and every single one rejected him because he was black. Every single one rejected him because he was black. But you heard me call him Father Talton. What happened? When everybody else rejected him, the Vatican took him and trained him to be a priest. He thought, okay, the Vatican's going to send me to a missionary country to be a priest. And they did. They sent him back to the United States. (laughs) Back to Quincy, Illinois, where he grew up. Now you think as a priest, holy man of God, trained at the Vatican, that he would get respect. And he did, because he allowed white parishioners, black, Hispanic, Asian, everyone was welcome in his parish. Everyone. But the white priest didn't like that. They called him the nigger priest. They told the white parishioners, if you go to his parish, it doesn't count for your Sunday obligation. It got so bad, he was driven out of Quincy, Illinois, went to Chicago where he died in 1897 at the age of 43 years old. Worked himself to death. Now let me ask you, why did that man stay in the Catholic Church? If anyone had a good reason to leave, it was him. But he stayed. Why? Because he recognized that what the church teaches is true and good and beautiful despite the people in the church that are sinners in need of God's mercy. So we have to remember that. We're talking to people. And here's, as a law enforcement, I can tell you this. I've investigated school teachers, physicians, uh, lawyers, real estate brokers, all child molesters, and all married, by the way. So if the priests were married, that wouldn't happen. That's a load of crap. Because most of the molesters I investigated were married. So let's not go there. <laughs> now, one only thing I want to say about this thing is the whole Peter and the rock thing. On this rock I'll build my church It's the rock of Peter's faith. You know, first of all, it doesn't say that. Second of all, there's no other place in scripture where rock is equated with faith. Because they're going to say Peter's faith, that rock, the rock is faith, then where else in the Bible is rock equated with faith? Nowhere else. Second of all this, they use the word Petra, okay? That's what it means, a small rock. And mean uh, and look, okay, here's the thing, here's the thing. I mean, they use Petra, here's the thing. Peter is a guy, Okay? Unlike English, other languages, you can tell whether it's masculine or femi- feminine by the ending, right? If I say amigo, Spanish, that means a friend is male. If I say amiga, a- it's a feminine ending, then my friend is a woman. So in Greek, pet- now Peter is a guy, so they use Petros. They said, well, it means Little Rock, but it's a masculine ending because he's a guy, it's not Patricia, <laughs> it's Peter. So they, even though the word may mean little rock, go, well, see it's the rock of it. No, 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 no. How do we? How can we clear this whole thing up? So quite easy, if you go to the now. what, what language were they speaking? Greek right? Greek, right? But what language did Jesus speak? Aramaic. So in Aramaic, it was said, "Upon this rock, upon this rock, kaifa." Okay. Now, <laughs> in Semitic languages, they have guttural stops. We don't have those in English, okay? So it would have been kaifa. It sounds like you're choking, but you're not. Kaifa. It means a large, massive, craggy stone. Kaifa. But it's translated in Greek as petros because it's a masculine ending. How do we know to clear the whole thing up? Go to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 42. He brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Kaipha, That's Cephas in English, which means Peter. That clears the whole thing up. Because the Bible can't contradict itself. So if they're using Petros in Matthew 16, 18, and we're saying it means Kaipha, prove it right here. It says Caipha means Peter. Large, massive, craggy stone, and not the rock of his faith. Because what happened? He denied him three times. I don't want a church built on that kind of faith. (laughs) Now, what about sacred tradition? Because they say, well, Scripture alone, Scripture alone, Scripture alone. Let's see what Scripture has to say. First of all, in the Our Father, which appears in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, the Our Father appears twice. And when you look at the Our Father, what's missing? For the kingdom, the power, and the glory is yours now and forever. Not in the Bible. It is not there. But you say, the, the, your, your Protestant brothers, our Protestant brothers, pull their Bible up. Well, look, it says right here, for the kingdom, power, glory. How come it, that is in their Bible and it's not in ours? Well, very simply this Who were the ones who transcribed the Bible back in the day? Monks. Because people couldn't read. They were illiterate. There was no paper. If they had paper, it was very, 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 very expensive. So the monks were the ones who wrote on parchment, and they were the ones who made out copies of the Bible. That's why, by the way, we have stained glass windows. Because people couldn't read. So they learned the faith by hearing the stories and seeing them on the stained glass window. That's the way they learned their faith. So... What happened was when a monk was transcribing the Bible, he came across a, a first century, what's called an Enchiridion, or a handbook that the apostles used, used called the Didache. D I D A C H E. You can look it up on the internet. It's available. It said in there, After you say this prayer, you shall, our Father, you shall say, For the kingdom, the power, the glory is yours. Now the monk thought, Oh, okay. So when he transcribed the Bible, he didn't write it in the text, he wrote it in the margin. By the Our Father, he didn't. He did not include it in the text. He wrote it in the margin. Here's the issue: when the Bible first got printed, the Gutenberg Bible, the first ones printed, they took it from the margin and put it in the text. But it's not in the text in the Greek in Matthew or Luke's Gospel. So where does that art the kingdom power cl- of glory come from? Tradition. Oops, <laughs> it's from it's from the Didache. It's not from the Bible. Second of all, what does Paul say? in 2 Thessalonians about tradition, which he gives equal weight to, by the way. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, let's start at verse 14. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold on to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth Or by letter. So tradition, we're talking about sacred tradition, what we call big T tradition, which is along with scripture. Now, scripture comes out of sacred tradition. Scripture is part of the written portion of the sacred tradition. But there are also things that the apostles said that they did, that they taught, institutions that they established, which are not recorded in the scriptures that were taught to them by Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. He gives equal weight to the oral tradition by word of mouth and the written tradition by letter. Let me give you an example of how tradition works. In paragraph 1345 of the Catechism, there's a partial letter by St. Justin Martyr to the Emperor Antonius Pius explaining what Christians did in the year 155. What year is this? Some people are like, wait, think about it. Maybe I had a little too much to drink there. <laughs> it's 2018. So in the year 155, in this letter, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Here's what he wrote. See if any of this sounds familiar because this is what the church did in 155 A.D. On the day we call the day of the sun. What day is that? Thursday? Sunday. All who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. What do we call that place today? Church. Where was it back in the time of the early Christians? Not church. There were no churches. It was illegal to be a Christian. Two places. Catacombs or people's houses. Two places. Now what? Have you ever been to the catacombs in Rome? Man. It is an awesome experience. First of all, if you're claustrophobic, don't do it. But if, you, if you're not, you go in there, and then you, we had mass in one of the catacombs, and it was so tight that everybody had to stand up, shoulder to shoulder, the whole mass. Even I'm standing next to Father, I'm digging at the mass, and I'm standing next to, we're squished a little altar in there, but here's what moved me deeply. In the catacombs, these slabs were there, and those were where the bodies, Of all the Christians who died their faith, that's where they were laid. And we're having mass like the early church did in those tombs and in those catacombs where the bodies of Christians would, those people would rather die than deny Jesus. They'd rather die than deny Jesus. That's why even today when altars are dedicated, when a church is dedicated and the altar is in place, there's either a relic inside or underneath the altar. To remind us of those who have died and gone before us marked with the sign of faith. What happens at this gathering on the day of the sun? The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. The memoirs of the apostles. What do we call that today? New Testament. The the writings of the prophets. What do we call that? Old Testament. So they read the Old Testament and the New Testament. When the reader has finished, he who presides over those gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. What do we call that? Homily. Homily. Which is supposed to admire, I mean, supposed to admonish and challenge people, not placate people and make people feel good about themselves. That's not what the homily is for. I travel 300,000 kilometers a year all over the world, and I've heard some horrific homilies. (laughs) Think about this for a second, we, let's, let's, well, for, let's face facts. A lot of young people don't go to mass because they have no clue why they're there. They go when they're in high school and mommy and daddy make them go. But when you're your age, you need reasons to believe. And so what are we up against in this culture? The culture is trying to save these atheists, trying to take our young people out of church. There's belief in God are for weak-minded people that need a crutch to get through life. A flying spaghetti monster in the sky. Unless you can see, taste, touch, measure, or quantify something, it's not real. Trying to tell you boys can be girls and girls can be boys. They're trying to tell you that marriage is something else other than one man and one woman and any children they have together, which is the heart, the core, the center, the nucleus, the foundation of civilization, culture, and society. They're trying to tell you a child in the womb is not a person. It's a blob of tissue. They're trying to tell you that old people ain't worth nothing. If you're old and you're sick, you're a burden on society. You're a burden on the healthcare system. You're a burden on your own family. We'll give you two choices. We'll kill you, euthanasia. Or we'll give you medication to kill yourself, assisted suicide. And now it's not even old people. Look in England. Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans. Where the state said we want those children dead. We don't give a damn what the parents say because we're the parents now. We know what's better than that child, better than the parents do. Those children should die, and that's what happened. That's what happens when we as Catholics stand around, whine, and complain about everything we sing, and we don't do anything about it. Except complain. Now the hop that we come to mass. God is feeding us in word and in sacrament. He's nurturing us with his life. He's empowering us with the Eucharist to go out to be Eucharist to the world. And But let's be real. The only time Catholics that just, that, that just showing up on Sunday, punching the clock, thinking that's all I need to get to heaven, <laughs> although you can go to Mass every Sunday and still go to hell. Showing up and punching the clock is not going to work. That's not how it works. But they, they, they're coming... And the only time they will ever hear anything about what the church teaches about anything is in the homily. But what do we give them instead? We give them Barney the dinosaur. Remember, they got Barney here, right? Is he dead? Is he dead yet? I hated Barney with a passion when my kids were small. But that's what homilies sound like. Let's be real. I love you, you love me. What is that? This culture is trying to kill the life of God in us and the best we can do is Barney? No wonder the kids are leaving. In fact, they're not even leaving to go to the Protestant church. They're leaving for nothing. In the United States, the fastest demographic are what we call the nuns. Not the sisters. The N-O-N-E-S. They're, check, they're ticking the box. Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, none. They're checking none. They're growing faster than Christians. They're growing faster than Muslims. In the United States are the nuns. They're leaving for nothing. So the, the homie is supposed to challenge and inspire people. After the prayers, we exchange the kiss. What's that called? Then someone brings water and a cup of wine mixed together. He who presides takes them and offers them to the Father of the universe. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks. What do we call that? Eucharistic prayer. When he has concluded the prayers and thanksgivings, all present give a voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. How'd you know that? Were you alive in 155? <laughs> when he was presided, he's giving thanks and the people have responded. Those whom we call deacons <gasps> give to those present the Eucharistic prayer. So deacons gave out one this sound familiar to you (laughs) 155 that's the mass and everybody says the mass changed they changed the mass Pius the changed the mass the mass still sounds pretty similar to 155 to me that's tradition that's what we're talking about we talk about sacred tradition now let's talk about the bible quickly now, the, our Protestant brothers and sisters have 39 books in their Old Testament. We have 46, and we both have 27 in the new. How do we get the books that we have now? And why, are there, and why is their Bible different than ours? Now, got a little history lesson here. Got to go back a little bit. At the time of Christ, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Scribes, they did not agree on which books were considered Scripture. Each of them had a different canon. Canaan uh, in Hebrew means a uh, measuring stick. Each of had a different... So, for example, the Sadducees only had the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they considered scripture, the Sadducees. And that's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So, so the Pharisees had the Tanakh. The Pharisees had the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nebaim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And there was another. So they didn't agree on what was scripture. All they'd agreed upon was the first five. Everybody had the first five. What happened was after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, Yohanan ben Zachai, because the, the Sadducees were killed out, the scribes were killed out, the only ones left were the remnants of the Pharisees. The emperor Vespasian allowed Yohanan ben Zachai to take the remnant of the Pharisees south uh, of Tel Aviv and they set up what we now know as the modern synagogue system. Those are the guys who wrote the Mishnah and the the commentary on the Jewish scriptures. So now they they had to think, which books are considered scripture? It was those books that made your hands unclean. Now that sounds strange to us, it made your hands unclean, why? They thought of God's holiness as like a power. And if you got too much holiness on you, it could kill you. So, For example, 2 Samuel 16. The um, Ark of the Covenant is being pulled by the oxen, right? Who are the only people that could touch the Ark? The Levites, right? The deacons. Ah, (laughs) They're the only ones that could touch the Ark. Now the Ark started to fall and Uzzah, who was a soldier, not a Levite, went out of the goodness of his heart to brace the ark. What happened to him? He fell over dead because he ain't supposed to touch the ark. He got too much holiness on him. You see, it was the holiness that defiled you. It was the holiness that made you unclean. So in their mind, the books that made you unclean were the holy books, the books written in Hebrew. They had 24 books. They're no, obviously the numbering system was different. But those 24 books correspond to the 39 books of the Protestant Bible. What was left out? Judith, Tobit, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, one and two Maccabees, parts of the book of Daniel, and part of the book of Ezra. Why were they not included? So they were written by the Diaspora Jews who lived outside of Israel. They were written in Greek not the language that made your hands unclean. So he didn't include them. So now fast forward. Luther is translating the Bible into German. He wants to know what the Jewish people consider scripture. So he used the 39 books. But what a lot of people don't know is that he also took out of the New Testament Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, Second and Third John, Jude and the book of Revelations. Now you're saying to us, wait a minute, our Protestant brothers and sisters have those books in their Bible. They do, because after they took them out, Philip Melanchthon, who was a, you know, a systematizer of Lutherism, told Luther, mm, this is causing too many problems, put those books back. <laughs> so he put, Now why do you take them out? Because of they, they prove Catholic teaching. For example, <laughs> one of the tenets of Protestantism of Lutheranism specifically is sola fide, faith alone. Here's the thing. You know, I'm so glad Father Mitch Pacwa taught us Hebrew and Greek because it's really good to go back and look at this stuff. Um, The only place where the words faith and alone are together in the Bible, in the whole Bible, is only in one place. And that is in the book of James. James chapter, just to give some context here, James says that faith apart, is faith apart from works barren. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by works. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the only place where faith And alone are together, are in James chapter 2, but it's preceded by a word, (laughs) not (laughs) by faith alone. What Luther did when he translated the Bible to German, he added the word alone, 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 alone. It's not in the Bible, he added it. Only place your faith alone together, justified by works along with your faith. Now why do we have those, why do we include those other books? Because that's what the apostles considered scripture. What do I mean? There are 360 quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 360 times. 300 of those quotes are from the Septuagint, from the Greek Old Testament. Right? From the Greek. So in other words, I got some examples here. Matthew chapter 4 verse 4 corresponds to the book of Wisdom chapter 16 verse 26. John 4, 48, corresponds with wisdom chapter 8 verse 8. Acts chapter 9 verse 2 corresponds to 1 Maccabees 15:21. I have dozens and dozens and dozens of these examples. The apostles considered those other books scripture, so so do we. That's why we include them. Now, let's talk about Mary. You know, I I I could see why some of our Protestant brothers and sisters have an issue with the Blessed Mother. I mean, my parish in, or- in Portland, Oregon, it's a small parish, inner-city parish, half Vietnamese, the other half are Filipinos and Africans. Very strong devotions, especially to Mary. Now, on the Feast of the Assumption every year, the Vietnamese have this, you know, big... Um, you know, they, they carry a statue of the Blessed Mother with flowers all around it and the guys are wearing white gloves and they're carrying this thing and they're, and they're parading her around the church And so I can see if a Protestant walked in and went, see what I'm talking about? <laughs> you tell me, they're, they're carrying around a statue with my, you tell me you don't worship, look at that I can see it, but here's, we gotta look beyond. So for, first of all, why do we have statues in the first place? and pictures and icons, all that stuff in the church I get asked that question. I say this. Do you have pictures of your family on your phone? Yeah, let me see. Oh, why are you worshiping them? What do you mean? Well, you got pictures of your family, must be worshiping them since you have them on your phone. No, they're just, they're, they're members of my family. And I have pictures that remind me how much I love them. Yeah, so there's the church. We're old school. <laughs> we don't have pictures. We got statues. We have icons. Because those are members of our family. And just like you have pictures of your family all around your house, we have statues and pictures of our family all around our house too. And we don't worship them. They're there to remind us of where we come from, of our history, just like pictures of your family do. No different. Now, what makes the Blessed Mother so awesome? In Genesis 3.15, often called the Proto-Evangelium or the First Gospel, We know know what happened, okay? God established covenant relationship. Husband and wife, everything's going good. The devil shows up. Everything falls apart. He tried to destroy what? The family. He tries to destroy covenant relationship with God by trying to destroy the family. And who in the family does go after first? The woman. Why? Because every woman by her very nature cooperates with the Holy Spirit that we pray every Sunday at Mass is Dominum et vivificantem, the Lord and giver of life. And even if she never has a child, by the very nature of how God created a woman, because she cooperates with the gift of the Holy Spirit, every woman is a life giver and a (laughs) life bearer. And Satan knew that. So Satan says, if I could destroy that, everything else will fall. And guess what? He was right. Now her husband was supposed to protect, preserve, protect, and defend her. Where was he when all this thing went down with the snake? By the way, the, the word there is not—it's Nahash in Hebrew, which means monster, not snake, monster. Where was her husband when all this was going down? Getting a beer? <laughs> Where? He was right there. Now, some translations say uh, uh, she gave some to her husband, she gave some to her husband, who was with her? But it doesn't say that in Hebrew. So how do we know he was there? When you say you in English, you could mean you, or you could mean all y'all. <laughs> it's context, right? Context. So in Spanish though, they actually have words like tu means you, or vosotros means you. In Hebrew, when the devil says, you will not die. You will not die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will open, you will be like God, plural. That means he was talking to both of them. They were both there. Her husband was supposed to serve, protect, defend her. That was his job ever since he was put in the garden. And he stood there and said and did nothing while Satan destroyed his family. So God started the process of undoing that right in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15. Now, Genesis 3.15, we start seeing the temporal punishment for sin because we know there's two effects of the fall. The, lo- the eternal punishment of sin, the loss of, of heaven, and there's earthly or temporal punishments for sin. This is the one for devil, the snake. Uh, he's only talking to the snake here. I will, I will put enmity, that means complete and perfect opposition, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, when you hear that, what woman would you think of right away? No, 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 no. When you're just reading this, just in the context of Genesis, who do you think they're talking about? Eve, there's only one woman. It says between you and the woman. Adam, Eve, nobody else. <laughs> so you would think, you and the woman. So he's talking about Eve. How do we know it's not her? How do we know? There's three, three clues for me. First of all, he's only talking to the snake. What do I mean by that? The punishment involves two people, but he's only talking to one of them. Here's an example I gave today. <laughs> I have four beautiful kids, including, including twins. All right? When the twins were small, we had a rule. No ball playing in the house. But I was upstairs, and I heard, crash! And I run downstairs. The lamp by the television set fell over on the ground, broken. There's a ball, and there are the twins. <laughs> Who did it? they're pointing to each other he did it she did it he did it who did I punish? I punished both of them now this punishment involves a snake and a woman but God is only talking to the snake if the other woman if the other woman was Eve why wouldn't he be talking to both of them? because the woman is not Eve and when this prophecy comes to fulfillment the devil will be the only one around to see it come to fruition that's my first clue Second clue, he doesn't call her Eve. He says the woman. Now, when the Jewish people want to say something important, how many times did they say it? Three times. Number one, Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana. They're there with his apostles. His mom is there. They ran out of wine. The way they phrased it was the wine failed. How could that be possible? You're thinking, I've been to plenty of weddings, my friends' weddings, my relatives' weddings. And there was plenty to drink. What happened? How long was the wedding feast in Israel? Seven days. They ran out sometime during that seven days. Mary's embarrassed for them. Suddenly, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what is this between? Oh, wait, 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 hold. Jesus, she just asked for wine, dude. What? Hold on. That sounds disrespectful, doesn't it? I mean, if my son, if my wife said to my son, Benjamin, clean your room. Woman, what is this? Oh! 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 Benjamin, you in trouble? <laughs> huh? but, but why does Jesus call her woman? Very simply this. I think the blessed mother asked him to do something supernatural. So he referred to her by her supernatural name, woman. At the foot of the cross, who does he give who does Jesus give care of his mother to? John. Woman. Here is your son. He's entrusting the church to the apostles. So he calls her woman, supernatural. Revelation 12, verse 1. Well, actually, the end of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 19, the very last line of of, of Revelation, chapter 11, it says, The temple in heaven opened, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. Then the very next verse, Revelation 12, verse 1, Then a portent opened in heaven, and there was a woman with crown of 12 stars around her head, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. Who is that? Our Protestant brothers can't even argue with us on that one. That's Mary. So the, Ark of the old Ark of the Covenant and the new Ark of the Covenant are standing side by side in the vision of John. Woman, 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 three times. That's my second clue. Third and biggest clue, between your seed and her seed. Who provides the seed in the relationship? The guy. Now we know that can't be Eve because in Genesis 4.1, it says Adam knew his wife Eve. And the word there, Hebrew for knowing is Yaudah. That's knowledge that's gained by experience. So that's the word they use for intercourse. He knew his wife, Cain. He knew his wife again, Abel. So she got her seed from her husband. But the scripture clearly says here, her Seed. So to me, they're talking about Mary. Now, when the angel came to the Blessed Mother, very unusual greeting. Hail, full of grace. Kyre ketari tomine in Greek. Now, first of all, hail would have been unusual. You know, that was a greeting for royalty. Like, hail Caesar. You know, I don't go, hail Kevin. Although he wants me to. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and kichari is the past perfect participle of the Greek word to. So literally it means hail you who have always been graced. You who have always been full of grace. So if she's always been full of grace there's no room for anything else including sin. That's the Catholic understanding. Mary is the mother of God. That's why we give her... We don't... We don't Worship her or adore her—that's reserved for God alone. But we give her reverence and respect because of who she is and the role she played in God's plan for salvation history. She's pretty awesome. How much time do I have? Do I? No one told me. An hour. But, uh, a couple of, minutes. couple of minutes left. Okay. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me do this. Let me, let me hit, let me hit the mask then real quick. Now, Jesus' words at the Last Supper are extremely important. In fact, if the priest does not say them, there is no Eucharist. Hope you realize that. In order for sac- any sacrament you value, you have to have valid matter and valid form, for us in the Latin Rite, the valid matter is what: wheat bread, grape wine. No M and M's, no chocolate chips, none of that stuff has to be great. You have to use what Jesus, unleavened bread, what Jesus used. But the form is the words of consecration that Jesus said at the Last Supper. If the priest does not say them, there is no, no Eucharist. So we got to look at the words of Jesus. First of all, Jesus says, "This is my body. This is my blood." How do we know he was speaking literally and not metaphorically? How do we know for sure? I gave a talk to a group of uh, at a university where there. Were eight, in fact, it was the last I was in Perth, and I gave a talk at a university there. And I, I spoke on atheism. I gave a whole talk just on atheism. Now, the atheists that were there actually liked the talk. They said, oh, you brought up some good points. So I talked to one of the professors who taught Greek there. I said, you teach Greek? He said, yeah. I said, do you happen to have a New Testament in your office in Greek? He said, yeah. I said, can you get it? I'm dying to ask you a question. So he goes and gets the Bible in Greek, New Testament. We open up to Luke 22:19. So Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, this is my body. And the verse next, this is my blood. I said, can you please tell me what's going on in that sentence? Just by looking at it in the Greek. We said, well, the subject of the sentence is making an absolute identification with the object. I said, can you say that slower so I can tell people what you mean? <laughs> the subject of the sentence is using the demonstrator of pronoun construction, tau tau to make an absolute identification between the object and himself. I said, let me be clear. Can you look at that sentence and say it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a representation, it's a metaphor. Sometimes it is, sometimes it, He said, absolutely not. I said, let me be clear again. If the person was holding their own arm, their own leg, their liver, their kidney, their, in, in their hand, and said, that is me, that's what that means? He said, yes. I said, how do you get a different meaning from what you just told me? He said, Jesus." So I knew what he meant. Exegesis is when you look at a text and you extract the meaning from the text. Eisegesis is when you read your own meaning into the text. He said, that's the only way you can get a different... Now think about it. This guy's an atheist. The, 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 Jesus means nothing to him. He don't care what the Catholics say. He don't care what the Protestants say. He's just reading it, what it says. Clearly, Jesus meant it literally. Second, he says, do this in remembrance of me. He does not say, when you do this, remember me. He chose his words very carefully in that order for a reason. First of all, he says, do. It's not the same do like asera in Spanish means do or to make or fature in Latin, which means do or to make. When they offered a sacrifice, they offer two types of sacrifices. Those you can kill lamb, sheep, goat, bull, oxen. The word is zarach. That's for the shedding of blood, slaughtering. There are some sacrifices you can't kill grain, wine, oil, incense. You can't kill those, they don't bleed. So you can't use the same word for slaughter. So you had to use a word for offering sacrifices that you could not kill. The word was asah in Hebrew, which means to do. It was official Jewish. Technical terminology for offering a sacrifice you could not kill. Do this in remembrance. Anamnesis in the Greek or zacher in Hebrew. Is there anybody that was Jewish here? Anybody Jewish or used to be Jewish convert from Judaism? Nobody. Oh, I always try to get one person. Because they always confirm what I'm about to tell you now. For the Jewish people, memory zacher uh, was not simply remembering the past. Oh, I remember my birthday last year. Oh, I remember that movie I went to. For the Jewish people, memory was something very, very different. When they celebrate the Seder meal to this very day, are they simply remembering what happened in the book of Exodus 3,000 years ago? No. They're actually there. Because for the Jewish people, memory is something that's alive. It's a living thing. They're not simply remembering. It means the graces and blessings of the past are made real and present right now. That's why in Exodus 13, chapter 8, when the, you, you all know that the question that the youngest person used to ask, why is this night different from any other night? Why are we eating lamb? Why are we eating bitter herbs? Why are we... And what was the response that the Father was supposed to give? Exodus 13, verse 8. wow well, Gosh, you wear glasses, huh? I'm getting old. The response that the father gave you to tell your son on that day is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of the land of Egypt. First person, present tense. Not what the Lord did for our ancestors three thousand years ago when Moses carried them out of. What the Lord did for me when I came out of the land of Egypt. Present tense. Because memory is alive. And Jesus uses that same phrasing. Why? The same graces and blessings of Good Friday that poured out from the cross are made real and present for us at every Mass on every altar. We're not killing Jesus again and again and again. It's the one... Sac- That's how he celebrate the one Passover? It's the one sacrifice of Christ made present now, today, on every altar. The graces and blessings are made present now. That's why Jesus uses those words. Finally, he says, drink my blood. Why would he say that? There was a very strong point. I don't have time to go through it, but in Levit- Leviticus chapter 17, three times, don't eat blood, don't eat blood, don't eat blood. But yet Jesus says, drink my blood. Now, why do they say don't drink the blood? It says because the blood is the life of a thing. Remember God's life, power? Who the only one that can touch the blood? The priest. If you got too much, you got too much holiness. But now Jesus says, drink my blood. Why? He wants his life in us. If the blood is a life, it used to to defile you? Uh Uh-uh. The blood no longer defiles you. The blood now defines you. That's Jesus's point. He wants his life in us. And so he empowers us in word and in sacrament. Then our job is to go out and be Eucharist to the world. End with a quick story. When I used to be active in a parish, my RCIA class, there was a a woman coming back to the church after being away for 30 years. She left in her 20s, coming back in her 50s. Her name is Michelle. She, She was coming through the RCIA process. Wonderful. She goes, I want to bring my fiance. Bring him. He's atheist. Fine, bring him. He's welcome. Dan sat in my class for the first three months and said nothing. Looked at me. For three months, said nothing. We break for Christmas. We come back in January to to start the next set of classes. Dan comes up to me, um, Deacon, can I talk to you? I said, oh, you can talk. Okay. (laughs) He says, I want to be Catholic. Whoa, 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 wait, stop, stop, what are you talking about? You sat in my class for three months and said nothing, and now you're telling me you want to be Catholic? You can't make this up. And you've been filmed with Tony the Tiger, no? In, in, in the United States, there's a cereal called Frosted Flakes. And the Frosted Flakes has a big tiger caricature cartoon on the front. So Dan said to me, when I, I said, you want to be Catholic? Why? He goes, it's like Tony the Tiger's nose. <laughs> Dan, I don't know what you're smoking, brother. <laughs> but you can't be smoking that stuff in the church. He said, no, no. He goes, what color is Tony the Tiger's nose? What did I say? Black, he's a tiger, they have black noses. He said, nope, bright blue. <laughs> Dan, you know how many boxes of Frosted Flakes I sat as a kid eating in front of that cereal box? The nose is black, the nose is bright blue. like, dude, I don't have time to argue, whatever. So we have the class, after class my wife calls me because the kids were still small then. Hun, we need milk, we're out of milk. So I go to the store, first place I go, cereal aisle. <laughs> Count Chocula, all that. <laughs> Frosted Flakes, bright blue nose. So I see Dan at Mass on Sunday. Obviously, he, he's coming with Michelle to Mass now, but obviously he can't receive anything. But I'm vested, I'm walking to the back. Dan, I you an apology. I would have swore that nose was black, but you're right, it was blue. Here's what he said to me. It's like my experience with God. He was in front of me the whole time, and I didn't see him. I said, he said, your class helped me to see Jesus. Time out. Not my class. His class. Not my class. I am teaching the one holy Catholic apostolic faith. Not my opinion, not hypothesis, not conjecture. I teach the faith that the martyrs died for. That's what I teach, Dan. I said what happened was you heard truth. You were moved by the truth. You're responding to the truth. But Dan, can I ask you why didn't you say anything? If you, if all this was going, why didn't you say anything? he goes? Oh, I heard everything you said. I'm like, what? I said, let's see. On November twenty third, you said this, word for word. I, I'm like, I'm like you're scaring me here, Dan. <laughs> he doesn't have a photographic memory. He has a what do you call it called, didactic or di- I did. huh? I did. Yes, where you can recall conversation. I've never seen that before in my life. It's freaked me out, man. <laughs> he said, I would hear what you said. He took no notes. I would hear, I'd go back and say, that can't be right. That's not what I heard about the Catholic Church. That can't be right. So he goes, does his own research. Oh, wait a minute. OK, I'll get him this week. That can't be. I'll get him this week. And every week he'd come back. And finally, he said, it, he's a he, very, very intelligent man. Very intelligent. He finally said, you know what? I need to take a intellectual honesty here. All the stuff that I've been thinking about, people have been telling me has been wrong. So he goes, I have to act on this. So I said, I said what did you do? He goes, I prayed for the first time. I know what to do. So I, I said, you prayed? What did you do? He said, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so he said, I walked out. Just check this out. I walked outside. I looked up in the sky and said, God, Mrs. Dan, if you're there, um, if you're real, show me. And I was like, whoa. I mean, think how powerful that is. If you're real, show me. I'm like, what happened, Dan? I'm thinking lightning came down and hit him. Something. He said, I want to become Catholic. I said, wow. So I taught to Father Nicholas, because it takes two years in our parish. And he said, is he ready? I said, this guy knows more than me. Yeah. So, you know, white garment thing, you don't wear like babies. But I said, you have to wear something white. So Dan showed up, Easter vigil, white shoes, white socks, white pants, white belt, white shirt, white tie, white jacket. I said, Dan, you look like a light bulb, man. (laughs) He said, I'm ready. I'm ready. He was baptized, confirmed, received First Communion. A couple months later, he married Michelle. Dan today leads the rosary before Mass. Because I'm out doing this work now, Dan took over my RCIA class. This guy is on fire. And I mentioned he has Parkinson's disease. Yeah, huh, what's your excuse? Here's a guy in his 50s, stone cold atheist, came listening, moved by the spirit, moved to the fullness of truth in his 50s. Most of you in your 20s. What's your excuse for not living your faith with passion and conviction? What are, we, what are we afraid of? We're afraid of people calling us names. We're afraid of what people think about us. That's not Catholic. That's coward. We're better than that. We don't have to be afraid. Now I end with this. Those three examples that I just show you how powerful our faith is. Those three examples I gave the atheists. Anybody recognize what those three things were? Aquinas'. Three of the five proofs of the existence of God by St. Thomas Aquinas. Why did I use it that way as a cell phone? Very simply this. If he would have said to me, You can't prove to me God exists, and I came back with Well, let me tell you what what the greatest philosopher, the theologian, the history of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about that. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't care what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say. No disrespect to the Dominicans that are here. (laughs) So we have to take this rich and deep and beautiful faith and turn it into a cell phone. So my young friends, I'm so honored to be here, to be part of the theology at the pub. We call it theology on tap in the US, same thing. This is awesome to see this kind of turnout. Some, often, I got to be honest with you, I'm a little discouraged when I travel around the world and I see the growth of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. But when I come to a gathering like this and I see so many young people here, some of you are staunch, some of you may be searching, some of you may not even be Catholic, that's okay. We love you you are most welcome. But this gives me hope. This is why I left my law enforcement career. <laughs> to talk about Jesus. To see young people on fire for their faith. We often make the mistake of saying, the young people, you're the future of the church. You're not the future, you're the church now. Amen. You're the church now. And we need your passion, your enthusiasm, your fire. Now more than ever. So my friends, the great American writer Mark Twain once said, the two greatest days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Allow the Holy Catholic Church, shaped and formed by the sacraments, will you cooperate with the grace to give you your why? Amen. Thank you all very much.